What is going on, Z-Pack? It is ZDogMD, a.k.a. Dr. Zubin Amanya. I'm live out of Z-Office. Okay, check it out. Here's the situation. You are flying on a plane, coming back from Hawaii. You're a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a PA or a nurse. And that overhead announcement that you dread just happened. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, is there a, uh, doctor or medical personnel on board who can come to the front, please? Filled with panic. Uh, immediately you have to decide, are you the person to step forward in during this medical emergency? And I'm going to give a case that's in the news recently that we can talk about. And uh, the first question that many people have is, first of all, are you legally obligated as a physician, as a medical professional, to step forward if nobody else does? It turns out you are not. So there's no legal obligation to help on a plane. There is, however, an ethical obligation. So with the code of conduct for, for physicians and healthcare professionals, you are ethically obligated if you are competent to perform the duties to step forward if nobody else does. And this just makes sense. You took an oath, you are trained, etc. But before you do that, before you step forward, because once you do, you are sort of down the path of you're, you're really duty obligated now to help. Before you do that, you have to assess your competence. So first of all, are you the type of clinician uh, or healthcare provider that can actually help in a case like this? Are you competent? Are you a medical student who hasn't done any clinical stuff? Are you a new nursing student? Are you a nurse uh, on a ortho floor that doesn't deal with sort of these sort of medical emergencies? So that level of competence you have to assess. You also have to assess what's your personal competence at that moment. Have you been drinking on the flight? Have you been eating hella peanuts and, you're, and you've got the itis? Like, what are the different things that might actually prevent you or put uh, patients that you care for in danger? So you have to assess that quickly before you step forward. And remember, you aren't going to get anything for stepping forward. Some flights will upgrade you. Some will give you a bottle of crappy champagne you could have gotten at Trader Joe's. So don't expect a reward beyond doing what you train to do, which is helping other people. So let's say that you're competent to do this. No one else steps forward, you step forward. You know, and the other question you have to ask yourself, what's your specialty? Are you a psychiatrist? Is that the best person to deal with a cardiopulmonary arrest or one of these things that could happen on a plane? So the second thing you have to ask is, um, what is your role? Well, your first role is to communicate with the person actually making ultimate decisions, which is the pilot of the plane, the captain of the flight. They're the ones who determine ultimately, does the flight need to be diverted secondary to a medical emergency? So you're a consultant but you're also potentially directly treating the patient using the medical kit on board. So you communicate immediately. This is my competence. This is what I do. You tell the flight attendant, this is what you do. Uh, I want the medical kit. I want to see the patient. I want to talk to the family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's all about immediate communication and making sure people understand, first of all, what your limitations are and then what you're going to expect from them. Then you're gonna to have to collaborate. So you're gonna to have to collaborate with the flight crew, you're gonna to have to collaborate with the captain, you're gonna to have to collaborate with the patient and the family and make sure that you're working together because really you're 35,000 feet in the sky. There's no 
other medical team there unless there's multiple people to help. Now, uh, an immediate thing comes to mind during this flight, the Southwest flight, where the poor uh, woman from New Mexico was partially sucked out of the flight, um, sustained a traumatic brain injury after 550 mile per hour winds, you know, hit you against the side of the airplane flying so fast. She was pulled in by passengers and a nurse who was retired heroically did CPR during the duration of the flight, the rest of the flight. While this flight was, you know, people were thinking they were going to die because the engine was damaged. So this is a great example of someone who stepped forward at great personal risk and actually did her ethical duty and did it brilliantly, right, in a situation where it was hopeless, but... She did what she could. So there's a good recent example. And I'm gonna talk about this 25-year-old nurse who um, uh, fell ill on a flight, American Airlines in 2016, and ultimately died, was found to have a, a well, let's get to that, Brittany Oswell. Uh, but first, let's finish what, what our obligations are. So you then have to actually get consent from the patient if the patient's able to get, give consent if you're gonna do anything. All right, so a written consent's better. It may be hard to do on a plane, but at least a verbal consent that's witnessed that the patient's gonna let you do stuff. And then <laughs> actually they say in articles written about this that you should keep clinical records. Well, what are you gonna do? Grab your peanut napkin and scratch it out. You're gonna have to remember what happens and document it after you get off. The flight crew is also supposed to keep records. And this is because even though you are a good Samaritan on these flights, that does not actually protect you from acts of gross negligence or gross malpractice. So it depends again on the jurisdiction that the plane is flying through. There's a lot of ins and outs and I'm not a lawyer, but you still need to document what you do, which is absurd. At least it isn't in an EHR at 35. Could you imagine the, the flight attendant rolls up with the, with the wow the uh, workstation on wheels and asks you to start clicking boxes, I would literally put a parachute on and jump the hell out of that plane. Luckily, it's old school medicine where you just do your thing and you can document it afterwards. So that's kind of, those are kind of the, the, the rules. And again, you're not necessarily legally protected, although there are some good Samaritan laws and it depends on, again, the jurisdiction, the country, all of those things. But many people would obviously support you if you help to the best of your abilities. Now, what is available on a plane? Often they have medical kits. There are actually some guidelines from the International Academy of Aviation and Space Medicine as to what those kits on planes are supposed to have. Many planes now have automatic external defibrillators, AEDs, but some don't. You're supposed to uh, purportedly have epinephrine in case someone's having an allergic reaction, antihistamines, dextrose 50% because if someone has a hypoglycemic event. By the way, what, what, before we get into that, what are the most common things that happen? It turns out because you're at a higher altitude, the cabin pressure is actually pressurized to around 7,000 feet, depending on the airplane. So it's like being at 7,000 feet, which means the partial pressure of oxygen is lower, the overall barometric pressure is lower. So if you have a pneumothorax, if you have pre-existing reactive airways or pulmonary disease, if you have pre-existing cardiac disease, um, that can be exacerbated by the low partial pressure of oxygen, the low overall barometric pressure being confined in a cabin. And the other thing that happens on planes is that the humidity is somewhere around 10%, which is very low. So that can exacerbate everything from sinus conditions to pulmonary conditions. So these are the kind of things that can trigger, you know, most commonly syncopal events, cardiac events, pulmonary events, allergic and seizure. Uh, those are the, some of the most common things that you can see that actually happen on a plane. 
And then of course you have obstetrical emergencies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of older folks and people at risk fly on planes. And remember, you're not moving much. So that can put you at risk for edema, um, overall, because the barometrics pressure is low, all the air-filled cavities in the body tend to expand and that puts pressure on things and causes problems. So that makes it other things in the cart can include um, nitroglycerin in case there's a cardiac event, some sort of anti-convulsive that's injectable, atropine, a bronchial dilator with a spacer in case someone's having an asthma attack or reactive airway disease, um, diuretics, uh, oral beta blockers or other things you can give. And then the equipment you're supposed to have are blood pressure cuffs, oropharyngeal airways, uh, stethoscope, obviously syringes, needles, IV catheters, antiseptic wipes, a tourniquet, a sharps disposal block, box, some gloves, right? You're actually supposed to have a Foley somewhere on the plane in case someone's retaining and you need to put a Foley in. Um, umbilical cord clamps in case someone delivers on the plane, emergency tracheal catheters, so all kinds of stuff, as well as the sort of uh, bag valve mask and, and things like that. Now, all that being said, it sounds terrifying because you're at 35, I don't care who you are, it's a, not an ideal situation to deliver care. Now, that being said, let's back up and talk about what happened to Brittany Oswell in 2016. She's 25, she's newly married, she goes to Hawaii for her honeymoon and she, she's a nurse in Midlands, okay? She's flying back, has a syncopal event, she faints. At this point, they call for medical personnel. A doctor responds to the call, sees the patient. Initial impression is she could be having a panic attack. And this is speculation, I haven't talked to this doctor, I don't know the case. Speculation is she's maybe tachycardic, her heart rate's fast, she's maybe hyperventilating. And there was some talk in one of the articles I read that they were giving her a bag for hyperventilation. Uh, she had fainted, that sort of thing. So the thought was, could it be a panic attack? Now, why might they make this assessment? Common things occur commonly. You're on a flight in the middle of the Pacific, people get nervous, she's on her honeymoon, she's young. She's a nurse, like what could possibly happen to this young nurse? Well, wait and see. So she, they take her back to her seat, sit down. Her husband takes her to the bathroom because she's not feeling well. At this point, she has another syncopal event, passes out in the bathroom, vomits, and defecates on herself. Now, if you're found down in stool in an in a airplane lavatory, things are getting serious because that's not normal. Uh, that is not a panic attack. So at this point, oh, and sorry, Melissa Bradford points out something very important. It's a woman. So there's already an implicit bias that this is a panic attack. It can't be a cardiac event. It can't be something serious because women are hysterical. I completely forgot that that's part of the bias. And I don't know whether the doctor was um, male or female. It doesn't matter because we all carry the implicit bias. And this has been a huge problem with treating women. So you're on the flight now. She has a second event. The doctor comes back. At this point, things don't look very good. He gets called to the front of the plane. Now remember, part of the rules are you communicate with the people who are actually going to make decisions, i.e. the flight crew. And the flight crew is gonna make decisions as to whether you divert. Now, sometimes you don't directly talk to the captain, but in this case, they brought the doctor up to the flight deck and actually had him get, or him or her, get on the horn with 
uh, American Airlines sort of on-call doc. So these airlines have doctors, and if you actually work for an airline as a doctor, come, uh, please leave in the comments, and we'll have you on the show to talk about what that's like. So, and what your decision process, what you're what, what you're th- looking uh, at when you when you make those decisions. So, they call the doctor. The doctor on the plane says, we need to land the plane immediately and get her attention. And this was all complicated by the fact that their blood pressure machine on the plane, the first one didn't work. The second one didn't, uh, said it gave an error reading apparently. Now imagine trying to take a manual blood pressure on a loud ass plane. You're not gonna hear the Karatikov sounds very well. And so you probably need the machine. The machines, by the way, are more accurate anyways, which I have talked about elsewhere on another show on hypertension. So. That, that all being said, uh, at this point, they, they, they said you, you, the doctor recommended landing the plane. Now, the captain talking to the doctor on the ground then made a decision. You know what? We're not going to land right now. We're going to land in Dallas-Fort Worth, which is 90 minutes away from that moment. That decision ended up potentially, potentially, we don't know, being fateful. Because what happened then is she went into full cardiac arrest, uh, lost her pulse, stopped breathing. At this point, they're doing CPR. They grabbed the AED that was on the flight. Remember, this is a 25-year-old, young African-American nurse coming home from her honeymoon with her husband. They start CPR. Uh, They try to put the AED on. Three times, the AED says, no shock required. Now, ZPAC, let me ask you a question. The way the press was spinning this was the AED was broken. Partially, the lawsuit that the family is bringing has to do with, uh, with the equipment wasn't working. They made the decision to not divert the plane earlier than 90 minutes. And so here's a question, guys. Uh, why might an automatic a external defibrillator not shock this woman? Let's come back to the potential answer to that when, we, when I tell you what she had. So at this point they get to the end destination this woman is basically coding the whole time rushed to a hospital somewhere in dallas i presume because landed in dallas fort worth dies three days later diagnosis anoxic brain injury secondary to cardiogenic shock secondary to massive pulmonary embolism so let's retrospectively look at this case She passes out the first time, hyperventilating, panicked, impending sense of doom. Looks like a panic attack. She's a young female, diagnosed with that initially. Goes to the lavatory, falls down, found down in stool, throws up. Not a good sign. At this point, looking worse, Liz Mongieri nailed it in the diagnosis. PEA, pulseless electrical activity, or asystole is what this woman probably had when her massive saddle embolus or whatever it was she was ultimately diagnosed with stopped the heart from doing its thing. And you can usually have either total asystole, the heart's just not not doing anything electrically, or there's pulseless electrical activity, which means you're getting a waveform, but there's no pulse because you, you have such obstruction, either from a tamponade fluid around the heart or from a massive PE blocking uh, any pulse from coming through and causing heart failure. Now in this case, the AED is gonna read that correctly and is gonna go, mm-mm, you don't shock that. You don't shock a systole. You don't shock a pulseless electrical activity. You shock V-fib, rapid AFib, SVT, those kind of things. So 
maybe the device was actually functioning, but this woman had pulseless electrical activity or asystole. So that being said, three days later she died and uh, I'm sure they did an autopsy. And here's a newly wed nurse, one of our tribe who dies on a plane. And if you look back and you look at what the doctor did, um, apart from the initial misdiagnosis, which I think many people might've made, the ultimate uh, cause of death may or may not have been preventable, but the plane went on for 90 minutes. Now, why might that have been? The doctor on the ground might've said, land the plane. And the captain might've said, we are not able to actually sequence a landing at any nearby airport uh, in a safe way for the rest of the passengers. So they have to make these measurement, these sort of um, judgments. And so it's not clear. Now the family is suing uh, because of obvious reasons. And so it'll come out, I think, in the court case, what the details of the decision-making were. But remember now, as clinical people, if, any, if those of us that I'm looking at that, are, that, are, that touch patients, it's our job to be the consultant and to push for what we think is the right decision. Ultimately, the pilot makes the decision because he's not just thinking about the safety of one patient. He's thinking about the safety of everyone on the plane and the logistics of bringing a massive 737 or 7, actually usually these are 747s, they're bigger planes coming from Hawaii, uh, bringing that down safely. So this is a horrible um, situation. And you need to understand that like, you know, you have to think about so many factors when it comes to whether you're actually going to land a plane and they have some factors. So if you require immediate treatment, like an acute MI, acute heart failure, acute respiratory failure, acute cardiovascular accident. So this woman uh, qualified one requiring cardiopulmonary resuscitation and support. This woman qualified um, one requiring continuing treatment to maintain blood pressure, hypotension or severe dehydration or severe hypertension, right? Or it's very hard to control uh, blood volume depletion uh, causing hypotension. So someone's very dehydrated, diarrhea, vomiting, etc. Um, or they're unconscious or it's an obstetric emergency. You're supposed to land the plane as quickly as you safely can. What we don't know is how safely the pilot could have landed this plane. But I think going through this mental exercise, and I'm looking forward to reading your comments, especially after this uh, broadcast, because I'm sure you guys are a lot smarter than me about thinking through the details of this, um, especially emergency doctors, especially emergency nurses. Um, it, you, you, you have to look at a lot of the, the intricacies of this. Now, the point of all this is not to frighten you from being the person who steps up and does their ethical duty and also what we train to do on a flight when it's needed. And many people have already stepped up and done this. And so we as uh, frontline caregivers have to behave in accordance with our tribe and do our best to help if we're competent, if we're able, if we haven't been drinking, all those other things on the flight. And what happened to Brittany Oswell was terrible. We don't know yet if it was preventable, but if we talk about these things and we sequence them in our own heads, if something like this happens on a plane and we're thinking clearly and we remember this cast and we remember kind of the sequence of, oh, we gotta communicate, collaborate, we have to document, we have to do all this stuff, then hopefully that helps. Um, anyway, ZPAC, what will help our show, uh, you don't have to donate money, you don't have to find us sponsors. What you need to do is leave a comment, you need to hit the share button, to share this with your friends because that tells Facebook that this is an engaging piece of content which allows it to spread further. 
hit the like button, but the share button is even more important than the like button. So if you found this helpful, if you're angry about this or you have something to add, leave a comment, hit share, and then leave a comment in the description you use on the share. That is tremendously helpful and it also tells your friends on Facebook that this is something you care about and you have an opinion on it. Guys, I am so happy to spend my Saturday night with you. I'm gonna go spend a little time with my family. Thanks for watching this incident report. My uh, condolences to the family of Brittany Oswald, to the doctor who had to obviously step up probably on a vacation and uh, do something very difficult to do, and to the flight attendants and team that probably did their best, and we'll see what comes out in the lawsuit. Thank you so much, peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just gotta ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community really. And we support and love each other and share again through our own experience how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.